hotcakes. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we examine the climate crisis and all the ways that we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Mariana East Hegler. And I'm Amy Westervelt. This episode, we're going to talk about the dangerous drop in climate coverage and how that interacts with how we talk about race and COVID. Because if you're not talking about climate, then you're not really talking about those other issues in full either. And we have a fantastic guest to join us for this conversation. Brian Kahn! Brian is the managing editor at Earther, which is part of Gizmodo. He's also, we just learned, a former park ranger. Right? Shocked the shit out of me, too. (laughs) I was like, wow, I had no idea. No clue. Also, a former bartender, which uh, is a thing in climate circles, I'm figuring out. Yeah. Like, you too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had, I spent some time bartending. Some of the other things that we dig into with Brian are the studies that came out recently about the pervasiveness of both ciderism and climate coverage and the need for more emotional storytelling and how defunding the fossil fuel industry is defunding the police. That's right. Which is a story that broke in the mainstream press last week, but built out of a feature we had in the Hot Take newsletter a few weeks ago. Yep. So if you're not subscribing, what is wrong with you? That's right. Get your shit together. We're breaking shit. We're breaking news. All right. kinds of things. We're breaking news. Climate change is breaking records. How about that? It's true. It's true. Sad. Yeah. Speaking of which, it's time to talk about climate. We're so happy to have you with us. I'm very happy to be here. Yay. Okay, Brian, we want to hear a little bit about your kind of your origin story. How did you get into journalism and specifically into climate journalism? So I did it the opposite way most people get into journalism, which is I actually worked in communications and then decided to get into journalism because I didn't enjoy the fact that communications is like a sort of cushier calm job um, and decided to go do much more. When you say communications, what do you mean? So I was working with um, up at Columbia at a research institution called the International Research Institute for Climate and Society and was basically doing like a a bunch of reporting on projects they were working on and that other parts of uh, NOAA, so the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, were doing as well that were sort of tied in with uh, similar programs they were working on. So it was sort of doing reporting on that stuff and helping run a website and Twitter. Um, this was like way back when Twitter was like not really a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was kind of this like novel, like, oh, cool, I get to like tweet as like an institution kind of thing. <laughs> it, it wasn't quite the impact. It wasn't quite the, the way that I wanted my career to be going. So I segued somehow magically into journalism um, at Climate Central, which is a research and journalism nonprofit. Oh, that's and cool. I love those guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of set me on my path. Um, you know, and the thing that like really the climate stuff, like I come to it from a academic background. I was, I studied climate science and policy at Columbia. Hmm. Um, and I got into that cause I was like a park ranger and I was like, damn, like I love the mountains and I'm a big hippie park ranger guy. And what's going to happen to these things with climate change. And so that was my sort of in to start asking questions. And that's how I ended up doing this thing. That's awesome. Where were you a park ranger? I was a park ranger at Crater Lake National Park in Oregon. And then, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, wow. So beautiful, so different. And it's funny because I was like, you know, like this whole like 
get a master's thing. Like it's a one year deal. I'll go to New York and then move back to the woods. And it's been, yeah. uh, it's been a little bit longer than a year. Uh, it's been over yeah. a decade. Is <laughs> <laughs> is Oregon as white as they say it is? It's quite yeah, white. It's pretty, yes. It's pretty white yeah. bread. Yes, it yeah. is. I've never been there before, but like, you know, they've, I've heard a lot about the militias. Like once you're outside of Portland, yeah. it's just like yeah. fun oh, city. Yeah. yeah. It gets real weird yeah. real quick. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, slice of life. I'm working at a national park on federal public lands in the middle of a bunch of anti-government, um, you know, sort of folks living around. Very interesting dynamics yeah. when you go to town sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, if you could change one thing about the way we talk about climate in the mainstream discourse, what would it be? So I, I, it's funny. It's, I, I would like to answer this question. I will answer this question, in fact, um, with the preface that like, I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to think about a story on this. Um, and so maybe I'm just scooby myself by saying this. But I'm really tired of the idea of like climate as a left versus right issue. Um, yeah. And I think that it's one of those things where like when we talk about like, you know, Joe Biden's moving left by adopting, adopting you know, the 2035 goal for 100 uh, percent clean energy or clean electricity, like that's not moving left. That's just moving towards science. Um, that's doing something in line with what is actually needed. And so, you know, the both sidesism thing is sort of falling somewhat by the wayside nowadays um, in some most quarters. But, you know, at the end of the day, like if there's still this degree of like we want to frame it as a left first, first right thing instead of a, you know, fantasy land versus science thing. And, it, mm. you know, that's something that I think I would love to, to see work a little bit different, um, to be realistic about what is actually needed to like address the change, to address the climate and to create the change we need to not like burn up into a fiery crisp. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. Are there any interesting emerging themes you've noticed in the ways that, that the media kind of talks about climate change? What's your hot take, Brian? What is your hottest take right now? On was that a pun? Was that it? Was that a? That was a pun. Yeah. I didn't know we were still in the pun lighting around here. It's always the pun, I live, like the, the pun phase around here. <laughs> yeah, Amy is my prisoner, basically. Wow, Amy, um, you live in the punderdome. I'm sorry. No, I, I, yeah, I threatened her that if she didn't say it, I would be very angry. Yes. Wow, you two have a very good working relationship. Um, <laughs> glad to hear that. Great. Yeah. Also, answer the question, Brian. Oh, sorry. I'm stalling. Um, no, I'm not stalling. So, you know, I would say that the one thing that I've noticed, um, and again, like, I'm kind of lucky to work in a newsroom that, you know, is a diverse newsroom, but it's that there's this, we're sort of starting to confront, like, some of the more whiteness of climate. And I know it's something that you all have talked about quite a bit, but certainly, like, you know, like, my background was a very white way into this, right? Where I was like, oh, like, I love nature and what's going to happen to it. But I think that it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, a lot of other people are not coming from that point. And mm -hmm. certainly my views have evolved quite a bit since that was, you know, that was my in, but it was not the only thing. It didn't just stop there. Right. And so, you know, I, what I see is that, you know, it's not to say that everything is perfect or it's like a big kumbaya thing, but that, you know, outlets are starting to grapple with these ideas of, you know, it's not just the sea ice that's melting. It's this idea that, you know, we need to tell stories about people that don't have air conditioning in India or in right. public housing, mm -hmm. um, you know, or even talk about the impact of that sea ice loss on indigenous communities. We're seeing these stories kind of start to come up more and more. And I think that, you know, some mm -hmm. of that also stems from like the reckoning that's happening in newsrooms right now about how we've traditionally told stories in the wake of, you know, the George Floyd protests and the reckoning that sort of hit newsrooms, you know, basically 
concurrently with that um, about, you know, just how we deal with issues of race. And so I think that that is in some ways, you know, it might be forcing some editors that were once skeptical about talking about like these, you know, justice issues and climate stuff to actually confront them and take them seriously, whether it's because of the fact that there's decree from on high or whether it's because they're finally waking up to it. Yeah. Um, but either way, I think mm-hmm. that that's something that like I want to see more of. And, you know, I feel like Earther, we've been trying to, that's kind of our founding mm-hmm. sort of mission. Um, and it's nice mm-hmm. to see other places catching up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I want to come back to that because I both agree and disagree. But what I, the main thing I took from your answer is that you listen to the show. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Aaron that does it. Jeez, what are they doing with their time? <laughs> exactly. I know that you've been quarantined for the same amount of time as everybody else, and your lovely wife, Cynthia, has gotten into the sourdough game. So I imagine that you've gotten really familiar with the idea of bread. Yes. What's the most sophisticated kind of bread, Brian? Um, I got nothing. I'm really bad at guessing jokes, so. The upper Hit crust. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What did the banker want from the baker? This is a little dirty. It's not more dough. That would be good, though. That would be really good. I'm going to give it to you. But the actual answer is to pump her nickels. Wow. (laughs) Honestly, that's better. really wanted to have you on to talk about is um, this dangerous drop in climate coverage. We've been railing about it on the show and also in our newsletter that the numbers are not just like, it doesn't just seem like you're hearing about climate change less. You definitely are. Like there's been a precipitous drop Mm -hmm. in in climate change. Um, It's like if we're going to talk about uh, cancel culture, climate change got canceled. It's wild how less you're hearing about it from last year versus this year when it like absolutely didn't get better. Um, And almost every climate story that I read lately is framed with like this preamble about how all our attention is now either understandably or rightly focused on the pandemic or racial injustice. And I'm sorry, but I I disagree. I don't, I think that's like a false choice. It's a false dichotomy. I don't believe that one has to suffer for the sake of the other. Um, And I think the press needs to get better at covering climate as it intersects with other crises because it's always going to do that. Um, Mm. There's never going to be a new crisis that climate doesn't intersect with. And I don't believe that we're going to stop having other crises. Like we've got authoritarians taking power all over the world, like willy nilly. There's Mm going to be crises. Um, And even though the coverage seems to have kicked back up in July... Um, we're still waiting to see the numbers. Maybe by the time this episode has come out, the numbers will be out about what July looked yeah. like. Um, so we'll deal with that then. But ever since we started in May, it's just been a steady and concerning drop. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's even more concerning because we 
all of these big newsletter or newspapers like uh, The Guardian and um, all of these other places like Washington Post have just like recently recommitted themselves to covering climate as a story of our time and waxed all poetic about it, but then they just dropped it as soon as there was another crisis out mm -hmm. there. And I want to read from this piece that you published over at Earther by Jocelyn Timberley. This is what climate change looks like in an era of COVID-19. This is from March, by the way. The coronavirus pandemic seems likely to continue to threaten and disrupt lives across the world for at least several months to come. The global focus on the pandemic is completely understandable, but it is vital this does not mean the ongoing impacts of climate change are buried behind the headlines or ignored by governments. Too many people on the front lines of climate change, whether it's those in the Midwest or the remote villages of the Amazon, do not have the option to do this. You know what strikes me about this too is that like I don't I don't really get why it's hard for people to comprehend because it's like you know your life is like this you can be living in a place where there's a crazy storm happening that's worrisome and the pandemic happening that's worrisome and police violence that's worrisome as a human being like we're very used to experiencing these things all at once so I don't understand why it's so hard for people to I, yeah, I don't I don't really get why to hold those two ideas in their head. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I really wanted to talk about this with Brian because they're absolutely not doing that at Earther. Exactly. Earther has covered the race, the protests. Earther has covered the COVID-19, but brought the climate lens to it. Like it's not a choice. From so the start, you guys didn't like have to take a minute to figure that out. Like you just started doing <laughs> it, which is, you know, kudos yeah. right. to you. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I sometimes wonder, well, A, thank you very much. That's too kind. Um, and, you know, we really, I think for us, it was a chance to step back and think like often, you know, Earther is the climate site of Gizmodo, which is a tech site. And so a lot of the times, like, you know, just to provide a little bit of background, like, you know, we're considered like, you know, a blog from like the days back when like Gawker used to exist. This is one of the Gawker blogs right. originally. Um, and that, I think blogging culture in some ways actually speaks to why we're very flexible. And that, that's still, you know, it's been years since Gizmodo and Gawker decoupled and all the drama that happened around that um, with the Hulk Hogan thing, which <laughs> that's right. if your listeners want to like read about, yes. Google Gawker, Hulk Hogan, and you'll oh, man. have a whole, a whole days of reading. Hole. But, yeah, there's a documentary oh, yes. on it now too, right? <laughs> I just watched one on oh. Netflix. Yeah, it's good. There you go. Yeah. So Cliff notes that way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that that blogging ethos, like part of it is like, how do you how do you sort of talk about the thing that's in the news with the lens that you have? And that's one of the powers right. that Earth, I think, has is we've always had that mandate from the beginning of like, well, what is the big news? Like, what is the climate angle? It's never been like, you know, these, I guess not to like knock the work that New York Times or Washington Post are doing, like, but those outlets, like their climate desks, I feel like have a pretty rigorous, like, you know, plow ahead, like stay the course kind of thing. They're not as nimble as we can be. Um, and so we have a little bit of a chance to take risks, find new angles, right. dig around um, and respond to what's going on in the news. Like that's our mandate essentially. So, you know, it's like pieces like the one that you just read from Jocelyn, who is a freelancer that has a newsletter actually that I would highly recommend everyone sort of subscribe to as well as, you know, the great hot take newsletter. Mm -hmm. You know, she sent me the story. She said, hey, like I put this in my newsletter. I could do some extra reporting. We could tie it to a U.S. audience a little more um, to get this to hit home. And, you know, this is one of those first pieces where like I feel like we really put the pieces together, um, you know, with this like global, it was about this flood that was happening in the Amazon 
and its ties with COVID-19. It was one of those first pieces I think that we did where we took like a specific news thing happening and we're like, what's the COVID angle to, to talk about this um, in addition to the climate yeah. angle? And so, you know, yeah. it's part of our mandate. Like, it's just like, it's how, it's how we think. Yeah. yeah. It also kind of seems like y'all and uh, also Grist, I want to give some attention to, um, were prepared for this moment, this like racial reckoning. Yeah. Um, like y'all were prepared to do... Um, anti-racist coverage of, of climate, um, because I feel like you'd already kind of been doing it and leaning in that direction. So is that like part of your, your content strategy as well? Yeah, absolutely. And definitely shout out to Grist um, for doing great coverage on this front as well. Um, you know, we look at them and I, I hope they also look at us and be like, oh, damn, Earther got that. I wish we had gotten that because we definitely have that happen <laughs> at least like once or twice a week. We're like, oh, damn, Grist got that angle. We should have thought of that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it really is baked into how I think and certainly how the writers I work with, which are um, Yesenia Funes and Darna Noor, are our two writers mm-hmm. um, doing the majority of writing for us. And it's how they think as well. And so, yeah. I, you know, I would say to that women like... women of color. Yeah. And I think that that yeah. speaks to the value of having diversity in your newsroom. Like, it, if it was right. three white guys, like, maybe we'd think that way. But the chances are that that's probably... I know that we're getting different stuff because we have the diversity of thought in our newsroom and it's a huge asset. So, you know, is it like this thing where we sit down and are like, oh, like what's the anti-racist angle for like X, Y, and Z? And how do we do that? Like, no, it's just kind of is baked into our approach as like, you know, three humans that see injustices and that, you know, view the world through differing lenses. So we really are able to bring our sort of expertise and our insights together in ways that I think are, I mean, they feel really exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah, that makes me think of two things. One is that when you're running this shop with three dedicated people, um, I mean, you've got freelancers, I'm sure you've got access to the rest of Gizmodo, but it's like three people whose job this really is, which is why to me, it's like incredibly inexcusable that gigantic outlets like The Guardian and Washington Post and New York Times um, can't stay on climate and can't introduce a climate lens to their their COVID or racial justice reporting. It's ridiculous. Like in particular, like um, I think about places where they have climate reporters of color that they've like sent over to the COVID desk or the race desk, and they don't get to bring climate with them. Like that doesn't make sense to mm-hmm. me. The other thing is that like yes, you have like two women of color like working in your newsroom, but also it seems like they're able to be heard in a way that they often are not at these other big outlets. I mean, we had a whole show with Kendra Pierre about how like that is not always the case. Hearing her experience with the New York Times, I mean, and just as a woman of color in a newsroom, like it was very, I mean, it was stark to me in a lot of ways because I, I feel like that's something we explicitly try, like the things that, the issues she was describing are things we explicitly try not to do, um, you know, at Earther mm-hmm. and across the other sites that were kind of a part of not just Gizmodo, but, you know, Jezebel, Lifehacker, Jalopnik or some of the other sites that are part of our network. And I, I yeah, you know, I mean, our upper management, um, you know, they've said they've had this commitment to diversity, but I would say that, you know, it's the middle management that's really like where the rubber hits the road, where we're seeing you know, that push to really listen to the people in our newsroom that may be pushed aside in other places. And I'm not saying this to be like, you know, we're like the best or that there aren't issues that we don't need to sort out. But it's clearly like it's something that, you know, is really important to me is, you know, just a person that cares about justice and wants to see the world be just for everyone. Um, and it's something that I see across our newsroom as well that, you know, 
we're, we're trying our best and, you know, obviously we're also learning as we go. Yeah. And folks should be following, um, if you do the Twitter, you should be following Darna and Yasinia, and we'll definitely make sure to make that accessible for people. Yes. spend an average of 90% of their time indoors, which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. In some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods, and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires, and it keeps the household air clean. Air Doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off, depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code DROLD. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%, 40%. Go to drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Why was the loaf of bread upset? Um, something about rising, but I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Oh, no, you're, you're close. Oh, really? Oh, well. Yeah. Uh, 
I, that's about all I got. Something about rising. His plans were always going awry. <laughs> Why was a slice of bread upset with her husband? Mm, because bread shouldn't... I, I don't know. <laughs> he told her she was being too needy. God. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oof. I was gonna say because she had a yeast infection. Oh! oh wow. Why? You level. could have said that. <laughs> Nothing stopped you from saying that. Show me in. Help me out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So another thing that we wanted to talk about this week um, is. The need to undo bad coverage, like this drop in coverage is not just bad because climate is getting worse, but also because there's decades <laughs> of bad faith coverage that's been done. Um, if you want like a deep dive into that, don't even go into an internet rabbit hole. Just go listen to Drilled, which is Amy's other <laughs> podcast, where Amy is way more tame than she is with me. <laughs> my serious voice i use my serious voice there yeah she does and she doesn't drink uh whiskey on that one it's true um coffee yes whiskey no yeah yeah this is the whiskey um, podcast so I, that's the, the coffee podcast yeah uh we do coffee on this we show do, too we, we do, do it all it's true it's true sometimes we get a little crazy and we drink water no. I, I know i know um but uh, yeah, I wanted to start off by just framing us with this uh, article that came out in Gris, speaking of, um, just this week. It's called The Surprising Reasons Why People Ignore the Facts About Climate Change by Kate Yoder. The underlying reason people dismiss climate science, it turns out, has more to do with political identity than logic. In fact, the more intelligent people are, the more polarized they tend to be on climate. When they're challenged, Democrats and Republicans alike simply use their smarts to justify their beliefs. Confirmation bias is a powerful thing. It's not just that Democrats and Republicans in Congress have different priorities when it comes to the climate crisis. They also use different styles of persuasion. A study published in the journal Environmental Politics earlier this month breaks down the differences along partisan lines. With the help of machine learning, Goober and her colleagues analyzed millions upon millions of words from congressional floor speeches from 1996 to 2015. They found that Democrats tend to make arguments about climate change backed up by facts and evidence, while Republicans tend to tell stories using imagery, emotional appeals, and humor to sway people to their sides. According to Goober, Republicans are communicating in ways that may ultimately be more effective. So, a couple of things about this is that, like, I, I, I've seen, like, some conversation about this on Twitter where nuance goes to die. <laughs> um, but, you know, folks are sort of being like, well, does that mean that we shouldn't use facts? No. Folks, I'm going to hit you with something that, like, might really knock you off your socks. You can tell a story with facts. Yes. Whoa. You can absolutely fucking do that. I know. You can tell a factually accurate story. Yes. In fact, I actually just had this conversation with someone. There's a whole weird thing in the podcast world where, like, um, you have these two camps of, of, like, you've got the NPR people 
who like started out at NPR and they have this background in like hardcore journalism. And then you have the podcast people who like only ever worked on podcasts and they kind of like shit talk each other <laughs> in this really Ooh, I want to get out on this. Yeah. Is that a podcast? No, no, it should be, but it's really funny cuz it's like like sure. both sides think, you know, like the NPR people think the podcast people are like bad journalists and the podcast people think the NPR people are bad storytellers. That's basically like the gist of it. But I'm like, guys, you need both. And also, you know, I've had a couple of um of like narrative podcast people be like very nonchalant about fact checking. And I'm like, mm. no, dude, like you're telling a nonfiction story. You have to make sure the facts are right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, yeah. I don't get this. You can't just be like Alex Jones. And exactly. Get I don't get this whole thing of like that. If you, um, a, that if you have a story, it can't be factual, like that somehow facts make mm-hmm. stories boring and that like, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a factual story that you can't use narrative to make it interesting, it's ridiculous. But this, um, this kind of leads us into the whole both sidesism thing, which you uh, referenced a little bit ago too, Brian, but there was a study out yeah. um, this week also that was, quite disturbing because I feel like there has been there's been some research that has said oh like good news like both sidesism is over and I know that like we have seen Mm. less and less of it in um, newspapers for quite a while especially the sort of standard you know but climate skeptics say blah 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 Um, but this Mm -hmm. study that just came out this week found that in fact both sidesism is still very much happening (laughs) It's alive and well. Alive and well. Real quick though, what is both sides? Oh, okay. I don't want to. Okay, so I mean, just the the idea that you see in newspapers all the time that there are two equal sides to every story, and that both those sides should be Mm -hmm. equally represented in in any story about whether it's COVID or race or climate mm -hmm. or you know whatever. That there's like. Right. Um, I mean, not just I think it's important to to like underscore that it's not just that there are two sides, but that those two sides are equal. That's the real problem. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. It's like the objectivity myth, which we talked about again yes. in, the, in the first episode with Kendra. Yeah. 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 So this yeah. new analysis found no statistically significant change in coverage over a 30 year period when it comes to both sidesism, which is crazy to me and that and it said the trend can't be explained by excessive coverage of anti-climate press releases in business-friendly newspapers like the wall street journal um that like they're Mm -hmm. seeing this in even more liberal leaning papers you know the new york times all of these these kinds of outlets which i noticed just a couple weeks ago that there was a new york times climate story that that um quoted Steve Malloy and I was like come on guys this guy oh. is like who's who's that he is like probably the best known like climate denial clown guy like he's he's the guy that like um invented the term climate bedwetter um oh. <laughs> what a claim to fame yeah I know yeah. Right? his other big one his <laughs> other like favorite insult to throw at climate people is to call us uh watermelons um, by which he means we are green on the outside and red on the inside because we're all communists. Bitch, I'm delicious. He's, like, 
like it's like there's no there's like no universe in which this guy should be considered a valid source for a legit newspaper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's the thing with the the climate deniers. Like they're they're um you know, like they're they're good at talking to people. Um Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it goes back to that idea of storytelling, yeah. right? Like Exactly. They just tell a seductively yeah. simple story. Like, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Like, and they're yes. funny, right? Like, yes. Amy pointed out on Twitter that they use dad they jokes. They are the kings so, of So, you dad know what? Jokes. There's a method to my madness. <laughs> True. I know what True. I'm doing over yeah. here. No, they are. Yeah. They're like, they, and like you said, Brian, like the, it's, it's an appealing story. That's the thing too, is like, I mean, this is why it becomes such a problem that the climate, like the folks that are kind of advocating for climate action are all about like, you know, facts and no emotion and whatever. And then the climate deniers have two things going for them. One, like they embrace storytelling and jokes and emotion and whatever else, but they're also selling a much more appealing story, which is like that it's not a problem and you don't have to worry about it. Right. That also like, that makes me think about um, which one is older like storytelling is extremely old. Mm-hmm. Like sit around a fire, tell a story. It's much older than science and math. That's true. Well, science um, and math and are just so, types of storytelling. I mean, they're like narratives. Yeah, but like our our idea of having numbers and like those numbers being ir- on being provable yeah. and true and objective. Like, actually, like the I- yeah. the idea of truth is older than the idea of facts. Mm. Um, it's like from the time we evolved as human beings, we tell stories. It's how we built community. And so it makes sense to me that the best storyteller is the person you want to listen to. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like in terms of like, when I think about like members of my own family, like the ones who were the funniest, who told the best stories, like those were my favorite uncles. They were not reliable people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they could tell a story you know what I mean I mean some of them were some of my uncles were but mm-hmm. like you know I have won arguments because I made the most impassioned argument mm-hmm. I, not because I was wrong as hell right like once we were able this is before you could google on your phone kids <laughs> um, <but> like, <laughs> I believed myself yes. and I won yes yeah but I, I I got interested while you were talking, and I went and looked at the article um, about this study because I wanted to see when the study ended. It went from 1983 mm-hmm. uh, to 2013. That's the 30-year period That's in question. And what's interesting is that they're not like, oh, we actually got better at this, like you were saying. Yeah. Like, we didn't get better as of 2013, which is actually quite recent. Yeah. That's, and, and see, like, previous studies had sort of said that it you know it had declined beginning in like you know the early to mid 2000s and and whatnot so the fact that this study is saying no again i feel like it's this objectivity thing where like it's very easy for people to accuse journalists of being biased and get get them to overcorrect in their favor it happens all the time I mean, I think about that a lot with like the Green New Deal opposition and like, yeah. you know, when they did the whole like, let's eat hamburgers. I mean, the, it fits the perfect mold, right? It's yeah. jokey. It's kind of like tongue in cheek. Yeah. It tells a little funny story. Like, and it's just like, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, are they, aren't they going to ban hamburgers? And what are the both sides of this? Yes. Like, oh, all God. of a sudden like, that becomes that? the frame. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The person who I think gets at this the best is Naomi Oreskes. And she has this thing that she says all the time, which is like, it would, it's the same as if a sports reporter 
reported the score of a game and people were like, like tried to argue that that wasn't the actual score. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, yes. And then the reporters report that like it's Exactly. And then the reporters were like, oh, you're right. I guess maybe it could have been 5-3 instead of 6-4. Right, right. Yeah. The Yankees said they won. The Red Sox said yes, they won. Exactly. They're both saying things. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It's, yeah, right. It's crazy. Um, yeah. yeah. I also just want to point out that, like, this whole storytelling is more persuasive. Me and Amy have been saying that for a while. Like, I hate to say <laughs> I told you so, but we did. And I just yes. want to. We've been saying you know, that. Just We've a little bit of that. a victory lap. Yeah. Take that victory lap. We stay woke. <laughs> um, <laughs> so reading these studies was like very validating, actually. Both of them yeah. um, made me feel like, oh, now I have science to back up what I say yeah. when like, you know, ridiculous people are like, that's just your hunch. I'm like, well, my hunch is working, girl. Another thing we wanted to talk about is um, hurricane and wildfire season and extreme heat. And like, we're just not talking about these things. And it's weird. Yeah. In the beginning of the pandemic, our first thought was like, oh shit, it's about to be a hurricane and wildfire season. What if this is still going on when that happens? Mm -hmm. And the thing is like, now it is going on during the pandemic, but you wouldn't know it. To look at at the coverage. And that's why that like intersectional, like intersectional means more than just race. Intersection literally just means an intersection. So you can have COVID climate intersectionality, which is absolutely what we have, but we're just acting like we don't. So there was Cyclone Amphan, which is like this giant storm Mm -hmm. in India and Bangladesh recently. And now there's also like a huge flood going on in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. All of that is happening on top of COVID already. There was a tropical storm in New York City just like a couple of weeks ago. And your girl didn't know it. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's a lot of rain. That's interesting. My window's banging. That's a lot of wind. That's weird. And then I saw somebody tweet, like, how is there a tropical storm going through New York City and nobody's talking about it? And I was like, in the middle of eating like a handful of chocolate chips, like, oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, wait, but word, how are we not talking about this? And Brian, you've been writing about the cyclones um, that are happening now. So, yeah, fill us in because ain't nobody talking about it. Oh, it never ends. I mean, as we speak now, there is a cyclone that's, you know, in the Atlantic that's rushing. It left three or what was it? I think it was 300,000, 400,000 people in Puerto Rico without power. Went over the Bahamas that were hit by Dorian last year. It's coming up through Florida now. Um, you know, by the time this podcast is probably out, like it will have passed through the New York area. Um, so, you know, it's uh, this Atlantic hurricane season is just been like super weird and super fast. And I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not to say that it's it's on pace to be one of the most active, if not the most active hurricane season in the Atlantic ever recorded. And that is just absolutely wild. Um, and mm-hmm. frankly, it's terrifying. Like that is a humongous story that, you know, should be uh, dissected on the regular, especially because these storms just haven't let up. Mm-hmm. Right. What are we on now? Like J? We're on I. We're about to get to J. I? I think we're about to, we're get, about to, to get to J. J. Wow. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And the Katrina anniversary is coming up at the end of the month. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we will likely be well past K by then. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. you know, that's the season that was, that's, I memory serves correctly, which I think it does. That's, you know, 2005 was the busiest hurricane season on record. We made it into the Greek alphabet because we ran out of letters named for oh, storms. Oh, shit. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. So that's something that is, uh, you know, potentially on the horizon for us. It's not to say that, like, you know, we're going to get a, a Katrina type of storm, although, you know, we're projected mm-hmm. to get a lot of more than normal um, major hurricanes. So mm-hmm. it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's yeah. terrifying. I also want to point out that Hurricane Dorian took form on August 24th. Oh, God. Yeah. Hurricane Dorian was a D. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have been saying, oh, no, what happens when, like, you have, you know, quarantine restrictions on top of evacuations? Like, I don't think there's been anything figured out on that front. Definitely yeah. not. And we're seeing it in I mean, wildfires, too. There's people evacuated right now. Thousands of people in California have been evacuated for wildfires. And, like, you're only hearing about it in, like, local California papers, you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I I want to read from this piece that was in Media Matters about this lack of coverage and in particular the way we talk about extreme weather on TV mm. news because TV news, especially when something's like happening outside your window, right. that is how most people are getting their news. They're not like reading articles. Right. They turn on cable news or local news or whatever. So the title is Corporate TV News Needs to Break Its Cycle of Shallow Coverage of Extreme Weather. It's by Allison Fisher and Evlando Cooper in Media Matters. Corporate TV news programs coverage of extreme weather events, climate-fueled wildfires, superstorms, record-breaking heat waves, and mega droughts has become as predictable as the events themselves. With few exceptions, they are reported as isolated meteorological phenomena whose magnitude and human impact are mostly defined by statistics and the usual parade of disaster imagery. It's a choice corporate TV news makes to report extreme weather events this way, and it's a harmful one. This choice has resulted in national coverage of extreme weather that largely disconnects these events from the climate crisis, allows systemic failures, the racial and economic inequalities exposed by these events to go unchallenged, casts communities that are often hit year after year by climate disasters as helpless victims, and lets those who have failed to mitigate impacts and injustices go unaccountable. Yeah, I mm-hmm. feel like I'm going to have to mention Michael Schellenberger here because... Uh. <laughs> oh, oh. Tell, because us, tell us about that. His, one of the main arguments that he's been making in his book and in his like various media appearances is that you know climate change is not making natural disasters worse. And then when people challenge him on that, he gets into this whole like gotcha semantic argument where he says, well, you're conflating natural disasters and extreme weather because Mm -hmm. the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, defines natural disasters basically by, you know, the economic and the economic damage that they do and the lives lost. So by those metrics alone, you can say that natural disasters have not been getting worse, but that's because people have gotten somewhat better at preparing and dealing with them, which is like very 
good news, but it's like mm-hmm. not sustainable. You know, it's like, yeah, but the extreme weather is continuing to get worse and it's continuing to happen in these sort of cascading ways. Anyway, I just think it's important for people to understand that there are definitely people out there who try to use these terms to kind of confuse the issue. And when we're talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, like I think this story says, you know, climate-fueled wildfires, it's not to say that it's only climate change that's causing a wildfire or that, you know... Um, sure. You know, extreme yeah. weather is getting worse because of climate change. That is settled science. The end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you know, like mm-hmm. shout out to like my former employer, Climate Central. Like I, I do, I, I hear this, like the pain about like the national news and like failing to do this, like dot connecting that needs to be done. But, you know, like one of the things that Climate Central was doing and I was there and is still doing is connecting with local meteorologists to sort of give them like climate related graphics and, you know, data and things that they can do to like tie weather to climate and these local, you know, TV meteorology reports. And usually like those meteorologists are some of the only scientists that like, you know, people are getting to see on a daily basis and they're generally trusted. I mean, everyone loves to bitch about the weather forecast, but at the end of the day, like people sort of like mm-hmm. respect the meteorologists and the work they're doing. And that program, I mean, like, the idea of getting those people as trusted messengers already in someone's home and having them share climate information has like, it's a really like simple thing, but it's kind of a radical concept. And they actually just published a study, mm-hmm. I think a week or two ago showing that, you know, it does make a difference. People care more about climate change. They understand it and, and they get concerned. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, you yeah. know, like sometimes like, I mean, it's certainly for me, I don't own a TV, so it's really easy for me to be like, Oh, like, you know, when I do watch mm-hmm. TV, it's CNN and it sucks because um, it's not the airport. Yeah. When I used to go <laughs> to the airport, the right? Yeah. But, yeah. Like it was bad. But like it's like these local channels are like making some inroads at least. And that's not to say that like mm-hmm. therefore everyone's absolved and we can all go home. But it's like there are these like ways in. And I wish they could see that kind of stuff trickle up into the national level. Um, wasn't, there, with corporate um, TV yeah. news. wasn't there a big project with the Weather Channel doing that too? I think it was Climate Central doing exactly. that I was too. thinking that yeah. too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're yeah. super, the Weather Channel is pretty impressive in that regard. Yeah. Um, you know, they're all mm-hmm. in on it. Um, and I also do, like, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out uh, a former student of mine who works for CBS National, um, and it's their meteorologist on their online network, Jeff Biardelli. Um, he's, you know, he, he was one of my students in the master's program I teach in on climate science and policy, the MA in climate and society, if you're serious and want to come do that masters um but you know he is somebody that has really made to like bring the climate discussion into the weather discussion and into the newsroom like he's brought in climate activists like youth activists to talk about their viewpoints and things like that so i think you know it's not enough but it's like there are a couple people trying to push the boulder you know up the hill i guess um, and hopefully we'll actually get it there if they keep pushing fallen out of the news it's like these major heat waves that we've been having like I, I believe the one in New York City feels like it just broke like knock on wood um, but it lasted way longer than I'm used to and I love heat not just because I'm a southerner I'm just weird um, it's very so weird. <laughs> it, it is very weird right I don't have air conditioning oh, like I, I love the heat but I definitely notice when it's been 98 degrees for a solid three week block. Like that's weird. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been wild and it seems like it's just not being talked about. Like when it is being talked about, it's just as like 
well, this is the temperature for the day. Nobody's right. connecting it to climate or COVID mm-hmm. or anything else. Um, and Media Matters, again, had another great article about that that we'll link to in the in the show notes. And it's just like, and they're also not talking about how it's impacting black and brown communities because it is much worse. Those communities tend to be heat islands, which means that they don't have tree cover. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have access to like places that have air conditioning more likely. Brian and I both live in Harlem now because mm-hmm. I moved. And if you walk around Harlem any given night, the nights, like people are out, like it's packed. But the daytime people are like hard to find because... They're trying to find a cooling center or something. Right. And how does that work during COVID? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one's really talking about that. It's, it's weird. And there's another piece I wanted to highlight in Insight Climate News about heat waves in Southern Africa. Climate science has a blind spot when it comes to heat waves in Southern Africa. Centered in the equatorial tropics, Africa is the world's hottest continent. And millions of people there are facing a growing threat from deadly heat waves. But no one knows how many people have died or been seriously affected in other ways by extreme heat because the impacts have been poorly tracked. Coordinating reporting is lacking, and at the global level, research and tracking of the impacts of climate change are biased towards developed countries, scientists concluded in a new study. Heat waves are one of the most deadly impacts of human-caused global warming in terms of lives, Otto said. It would be really important to highlight that in Africa. She said the issue falls squarely into the realm of climate justice. One of the key obstacles to compiling useful heat wave data in Southern Africa is weak governance in some countries, which can be traced back to a colonial legacy that destroyed and disempowered local cultures. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's so disturbing that like we don't even know how bad it is in some places because they're not even bothering to collect Mm. the data. Ah! Uh Yeah, exactly. It's so creepy. I mean, it's like if you look Uh, at a map of weather stations in the world, it's just like sub-Saharan Africa is basically just a, you know, it's like a a no service zone. There's like, you know, a few stations here Mm. and there. There's just, you know, that infrastructure doesn't even exist to collect the data in the first place, let alone look at what's going on in it, which is a really, you know, telling thing it's about, a problem yeah and another thing i've learned in working with the climate strikers in africa is like nearly impossible to send the money through things like cash app or venmo or even uh kickstarter what's that other one that people use all the time gofundme mm-hmm. mm. it's almost impossible to send them funds through that so we had to like find different ways to do it because i was talking to a lot of the strikers in uganda who wanted to help their community weather COVID and the floods that they were dealing with. And it's just, it's criminal mm-hmm. how underserved Africa is when it comes to this sort of thing. Yeah. It's like Africa's always, Africa's hot. It's always been hot. So what? They have a heat wave. Right. Okay, last one. I gotta make it good. Why did the baker file a sexual harassment claim? Ooh. Oh, oh. Uh, I, I'm not gonna touch that one. I just, I, I need to know. People kept commenting on her hot bun. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was good, actually. All right. That, was, mm-hmm. that might have been the best. Way to say the best for last. Mm-hmm.
so we should also um, talk about fire. Um, for one thing, the Amazon is on fire again. Yeah. Well, it's not the Amazon. It's Brazilian uh, wetlands, which is slightly yeah, different. Feels close. Well, also Antarctica is on fire. Yes. So you know what? I know. There's some fire problems. There's some fire problems everywhere. It is true. There's fires in Argentina as well. Yeah, Yeah, it's true. 1.5 million acres of land are affected by this fire in Brazil right now. That's like, I can't even, I can't like comprehend how large that is. It's like. Right. (laughs) Other area that's been having a lot of fires this year is Arizona, which is another one of these heat wave areas where people are like, yeah, whatever. It's hot in Arizona. I have a friend who lives in Phoenix who's like, oh my God. Like, yes, it's always, it's like always crazy hot in Arizona in the summer, but like. This is honestly, yeah. I was like, why do you live there? <laughs> yeah, you honestly, you know what this is sounding like to me. And uh, I don't care if people think I'm making a false equivalence, but <laughs> it sounds like the fireworks this year where people are like, yes. oh, there's always been fireworks. Not like this, bitch. Yes. Not like this. Yes. yes. I've never had ringing headaches. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we did a story at Drilled about the fires in Arizona because I feel like every year when fire season starts, there's always at least a couple of stories out there about the um, imprisoned firefighters in California, which is horrific. I live in the West and I didn't realize that it's like five different Western states do this, that it's like common practice for Western firefighting in general. And that in Arizona, this this like killed me about this story Imprisoned firefighters outnumber, like, mm. non-imprisoned firefighters two to one. Two to one. Wow. It's crazy. And they've yeah. told us on record that it bas- they're like, yeah, it saves us a bunch of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Respect the honesty. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. Wow. Yeah, and the thing is, like, that's wild. In, um, in California, it's extra bad because you can't, there's no way to get a job, um, it, like, firefighting afterwards because it's like, you know, if you have any convictions, you can't get a job, you know, as a firefighter, period. In Arizona, there's not that blocker, but if you do get hired, there's, there's one crew that they always point to as their example of like, see, we're rehabilitating inmates and we're giving them these skills to get a job later, blah, blah, blah. And the people in that crew make half what every other fire brigade makes. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we saw this story. This was actually, this was an example of a story where we saw this and Yesenia was like, damn it. I wish I wrote that story. Um, <laughs> the Sweat of Drill <laughs> is really good. And so everyone should read it. Um, and also, Earther was very angry at you for like yes. two minutes, Amy. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I love the competition. Yeah. No, you know, I mean, Climate News, I, I, we've talked about this a little bit, like Amy and I, like it's it very as well. Like it's not like it. it Competition can be healthy, but I think there's also a degree of like this is a huge issue, and we need everyone. Oh yeah, like, all hands totally, on deck, right? Totally. Um, yeah. And there's no shortage of like crazy stories. Stuff happening. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been doing some reporting on the California stuff, and are currently in the middle of working on a piece, um, which I guess I can't really say a ton about since it's not my piece and uh, it's being worked on as we speak. But um, yeah, we've been trying to get some details on what's going on in California this year as far as, you know, the prison firefighting brigades, but also, you know, what are they doing to protect these folks from COVID? Um, right. And so far 
information has not been super forthcoming, mm-hmm. uh, but we're mm-hmm. trying to get it. And I think that the reason it's not is probably because the answer is that they're not really doing much to protect um, prison populations from COVID. Right. We've already seen that play out in other places. And uh, it would not surprise me that California is doing the same, let alone with people that are actually oh, tasked yeah. with saving everyone's lives yeah. if a fire does strike. No, they're doing a bad job of protecting mm-hmm. prisoners from COVID, but they're also, their way of dealing with that has been to suggest maybe we shouldn't, like um, counties where there's a jail are like, can we just not include the prison numbers in our COVID count? <laughs> because like it makes yeah. the whole That's county look bad. I'm like, oh my God, no, you can't do that. Also, I like, have a maybe- dumb question. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say like also maybe just think like if that's the case, what are we doing wrong in the prisons? And should we right. maybe fix that? Right. Right. That would be my response as a you know uh, a concerned citizen. Right. But that's just you know, my two yeah. cents. <laughs> yeah. So my dumb question is like, are there more prisoner firefighters because uh, citizen firefighters are dying off, or people are less afraid or more afraid to do firefighting as a profession because fires are getting worse? Maybe. I mean, that would be, that's something that I've been thinking about, like, oh, I want to look into this more. Because initially when um, Steve Horn, who wrote this story for us um, about the Arizona situation, when he started looking at it, he was going to compare, he was going to look at California and Arizona. And what he really wanted to look at was budgets and how, like basically whether these states that use imprisoned firefighters are are closing the budgetary gap on like uh, climate fire stuff. Like, okay, climate change is making fires worse. Fires are getting, we're getting more fires every year and they're bigger. We need more firefighters. Are these states just throwing more prisoners at that problem? Or are they actually like hiring more people? <laughs> and and mostly mm-hmm. when he's, what like we've found is that um, yeah, they're totally just using prison labor to solve that problem, um, mm-hmm. which is really fucking gross. And, and you know, it's this, this whole thing, too, where, like, at the same time that they're like, oh, we don't have enough money to do fire prevention and to hire firefighters, they're continuing to fund prisons more and more in these states, too, mm-hmm. which, you know... I don't know that it's necessarily mm-hmm. they're like funding prisons for the sole purpose of getting more prison labor, but it sure doesn't hurt. <laughs> you know? Like, right. Yeah. Ugh. It's the most backwards priorities that you could possibly think of. I mean, yeah. just in terms of like where you put your money yeah. and, you know, how you take care of people, um, yeah. you know, your population, your citizens. Like, it's yeah. just, it, it is shocking to me. Um, I guess I yeah. shouldn't say it's shocking. It's just like, uh, enraging. <laughs> Like we're not hearing a lot about it, like not only because of COVID um, and because of like all of these distractions, so to speak, mm-hmm. in the media, um, but also East Coast media bias, which I know like will send Amy on a rant and I'm just going <laughs> to yeah. go in. Get yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it's like, I just, I think it's getting worse because you've had so many layoffs and furloughs and then people can't travel. It's crazy to me that like, there's still there's still this thing of like only things that happen in DC and New York matter on uh, to the like to the national news <laughs> you know? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like I, I don't know. I find it annoying because it's like, I'm sure that you will see a, a um, California prison labor firefighter story because that's like scandalous. But you won't see national coverage of like all the other fires happening or like, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of. It's frustrating. And you actually, like, as someone who has pitched national outlets on West Coast stories, like, they are just not interested. If it can't, if there's no way that it, that it impacts people in D.C. or New York, forget it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, it also reminds me of, like, I think it was last week when I heard there was a hurricane barreling toward Hawaii, oh, yeah. and I texted you to be like, is this normal? And you were like, yeah, they happen there all the time. But I didn't know right, that. Right, because why would you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a perfect example of, like, the, like, hurricane, actually, hurricane season in Hawaii is getting worse, and it's highly problematic because, you know, they're dealing with sea level rise, so the whole storm surge thing is a big problem when these hurricanes hit. And, like, they can destroy an entire island. Like, in the 90s, the, like, the whole island of Kauai was like leveled by a hurricane, you know, but, um, yeah. 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 I mean, like, that's the thing, like, that's one of those weird quirky climate impacts that Hawaii is now like, you know, uh, becoming a more common place for hurricanes to approach. And it's yeah. just, it's very, it's like, they've been very uh, lucky is not quite the right word, but I mean, like they were lucky. They were only kind of like hit side sort of sideswiped by this hurricane that just blew through last week. Yeah. Um, but you know, like even last year they had, or maybe it was 2018, man, I can't keep all my hurricane years straight. I know, um, I know. But, you know, they had a big storm that didn't make landfall, but it still dropped 30 inches of rain. Right. Which, you know, caused flash flooding, erosion, all these other issues yeah. on the big island. Yeah. I was um, there when those so flash floods like, happened, actually. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's one of these things, too, where I think, like, you're, I mean, similar to Puerto Rico, too, when you're on an island, there's not a lot that you can do when that shit starts to happen. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they've talked about, you know, we should we should start coming up with a managed retreat plan, which is is basically like where can we move people that they will be safest when these natural disasters hit. Um, but there's kind of there's pretty limited options on that front, you know. Um, again, an island. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. I kept my East Coast media rant somewhat short. <laughs> that was very chilly. Me. I'm impressed with your restraint. Um, was it for me? Is yeah. it because I'm on the East Coast? You just didn't want to like totally tear into me? Or? No, just, I mean, it's, yeah. I feel like it's not, you know, I don't think any journalists or outlets want it to be that way. It's kind of just the nature of, of media right now and the economics of media that like, mm-hmm. you know, people are... I mean, outlets are shutting down. The ones that are, exist are losing contributors, not adding them. So um, you're you're yeah. definitely going to just lose coverage in certain areas. I mean, you know, it's tough even with like, you know, you mentioned like the layoffs and travel restrictions, but even with like budgets being cut, that's another exactly. route that is making it harder apart from other places. And right. you know, for us, like we have some visions for what we want to do with our Katrina coverage that would have been really nice to be in New Orleans for to get a local right. contractor to do some video or interview or whatever it is. Right. And it's just, you know, you got to fight tooth and nail for that stuff now. Right. Um, and yeah. on the one hand, like, it's better that I'd rather fight for budget than see someone laid off. But at the same time, it does, it just makes, 
the bubbles shrink a little bit tighter right. um, to what you can and can't cover and how you cover it. Yeah, totally. I know. I was talking to someone the other day who was saying how funny she thinks it is when people will, will like, she's a journalist, how, when people will accuse her of being like a quote unquote media elite. She's like, everyone I know in media has either lost their job in the last year or is making like half as much as they ever have in their entire career. So I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah. It's like the scientists, like people say the scientists are making it. Oh, money. right. Like, I yeah. have yet to read, to meet like a scientist who's like rolling. Yeah, in. exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, it's weird. Yeah. So I, I also like as we talk about how we're not talking about these big events, I've got to wonder, like one of the biggest fears I had when that tropical storm was running through New York City was, are we getting numb? Mm-hmm. You know, it was sort of like we were covering, we started covering natural disasters in the United States in our own media as though like the same way that we often cover them in like the Philippines, which is not okay when we cover it in the Philippines that way or in India that way, where it's like, look at this storm. It's a big one. Whoa, that looks hard. And then we immediately look away um, and don't cover it as a human interest story. And we're kind of starting to do that in the big media outlets with, with like storms that are happening here. And that's super disturbing to me. Mm-hmm. Um and Brian, you've done a lot of work on this, um, on writing on whether or not we're getting numb. You had like two essays in particular, one in May and one in July. And yeah, can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, I mean, it actually stemmed from the first one, the one I wrote in May stemmed from a conversation that I have with my wife who, you know, we have a lot of fun at our house um, talking about oh, yeah. lots, of, <laughs> lots of really sad things. Um, she works in climate as well. So, yeah. you know, we were discussing this idea that like, the Trump response to the coronavirus was essentially like a chance to, to sort of, I mean, the whole point was to make people not care, um, to make people just sort of accept that this was the way it was going to be. And like, when you map that onto the climate crisis, I mean, it's clear that that's also the Republican plan is to eventually get people to not care that the mounting toll of disaster is taking on, you know, us as a country, us as individuals, and certainly the, the people that have the least among us. And so that really, well, the first two of those things really hit me in that piece I wrote in May. And then as we sort of moved into like the George Floyd police violence and you know racial like violence protests, it sort of got me thinking like, wait a second, like it's actually even worse than just like they're trying to get us to be numb to like this idea of death. It's like they're OK with the idea of death as long as it's not white people that are that are the ones dying. Um, and the coronavirus disproportionately affects black people, Hispanics, Native Americans in terms of you know, getting sick and dying and, you know, obviously dealing with mounting medical bills as well. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that sort of inspired me to think like, oh God, this is actually even more fucked up than I first thought, which is sad because the first essay felt pretty fucked up to write. <laughs> you want to read us an excerpt from the July one? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do that. Um, okay. So the first essay that I wrote was called Accepting Death is Not an Option. Um, and then the second one that I put together was um, Trump's Racist Coronavirus Response, Foreshadows Injustice to Come. This is a horrific approach to a public health crisis increasingly contained elsewhere by decision-making grounded in science and societies invested in each other. To address the climate crisis will require a similar science-based approach and asking society to protect the most vulnerable over a period of time that will far outlast the time it takes to stamp out the pandemic. That's why what's happening right now with the coronavirus is so disturbing. 
Republicans have spent years delaying action on the climate crisis and have no real plan. Their response to the anti-police violence protests and coronavirus show they have no plan to actually addressing systemic racism. Mapping that deliberate inaction onto the climate crisis is a nightmare. When Republicans are unable to put off delay any further, the climate policies they implement are all but guaranteed to favor white Americans. The border wall is a racist approach to climate adaptation, keeping out, the US, keeping out of the U.S. people who have fled parts of Latin America destabilized in part by drought in a misguided effort to protect the homeland. It's easy to envision a Republican plan to build seawalls that protect wealthy white neighborhoods while making floods worse in poor black neighborhoods. Or perhaps Republicans' climate priorities and commitment to injustice would manifest itself in bigger investments in predominantly quote-unquote white activities like farming, rather than cleaning up, tox cleaning up the toxic legacy of the fossil fuel industry in places like Cancer Alley or foreign aid for drought-stricken farmers in Honduras, India, or Ethiopia. This is, in some cases, already happening with the Trump administration propping up farmers due to the trade war with China while fast-tracking fossil fuel infrastructure. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's... I I try not to dwell too much on, like, the bad things that could be coming, but it's kind of hard not to look at that and think again, like, when it comes back to, you know, the both sidesism that we've sort of seen play out in the media for decades or right. this idea that, you know, Joe Biden is, quote-unquote, moving left by embracing certain climate policies. Um, you know, he's moving in the direction of science um, and what we're seeing and justice um, and the Republican response to to what we've seen so far does not exactly instill confidence that they will, they will do the same. Right. Yeah. And I ask like, why do you want to stay away from the bad things they might do? I mean, why, why would I personally? Yeah. Like you said, you try to stay away from like how bad it can get. Like why? Well, I mean, personally I try, well, so let me walk that back a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Like I do dwell on those things and it is something that is a common source of conversation in my house. And it's also right. why I'm very excited to you know take a vacation and check out for a few days because it yeah. does really start to like viscerally hurt. Um, mm -hmm. Like it's makes it hard to stay motivated sometimes to think like this is what we're up against. And the narrative they have is seductively simple and, a hundred percent wrong. And, you know, how do you fight that? Um, you know, fighting that is, is a grind and it's really tiring. And I know that there are people fighting harder than I am and that are certainly, you know, doing like I doing their part as well. Right. Or even doing more than I am, but like after a while, like it does sort of start to, to grind you down. Um, and I find that really is really challenging, um, more mm -hmm. and more in this environment in particular with coronavirus and everything else happening in the world. Yeah. I I feel like if we stay too far away from it, though, then we wind up in these positions where outlets feel like, oh, we can let that sit for a second mm. because we got to deal with these other things. You know what I mean? Because it can like, like kind of neuter the urgency. Yeah. I think I, yeah. I really like 100% understand that. And I think that for me, it's, you know, I think for anyone working in whatever field it is, I mean, like for, I guess I'll speak to myself, but like for working in this field, like when I feel the burnout hitting, it makes it really hard to sort of grapple with these issues in a constructive way. Um, you know, mm -hmm. like when the pandemic kind of started, I would burn out on like a Friday morning and then it's sort of moved to yeah. Thursday. And now it's like Wednesday morning, if I'm lucky, like I'm already fried. And I think, yeah. you know, it's important to recognize that like, if I'm not going to be productive, if I'm not adding or like, you know, 
if I'm not helping the cause in ways that I feel are productive, then like, I also need to like take a step back and like clear my head and hit that reset button. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like I don't, I don't want to end up in climate sad boy territory. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I end up there, I'm like, oh, it's it's gone to a bad place. So I'm trying not yeah. to get there. Um, I don't think I'm ever yeah. going to make it that far. So don't worry too much. No, I, I, I feel like Cynthia would keep you like on your toes. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I I think her and my cat um, would conspire to keep me out of climate sad boy status. Oh my goodness, <laughs> good. That's hilarious. Our last little section here, we, we wanted to um, look at this big batch of defund the pol- like defunding the police um, and and kind of how that's equivalent to defunding fossil fuels <laughs> um, in the past week. So or the other way around, or the other way. Yeah, the exactly. Fuel industry. Yeah, yeah. So um, so this is cool because you know we had a story maybe three or four weeks ago about how. Well, okay, when Chevron when Chevron started putting up black squares on its social media feeds, I was like, wait a second. Like, I've reported a lot in Richmond, California, home of the Chevron refinery. And I know for a fact that Chevron not only supports the police there, but directly funds the police. So I, like, looked it up and was like, yep, they're still doing it. And, yep, it's a lot of money. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. So we did a we had a story in Hot Take, which was uh, an exclusive for premium subscribers. Just going to plug that for a second. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Yeah, yeah. And then actually, a couple people that I um, kind of uh, connect with regularly who do research were like, "Oh, this is really interesting. Do you think that like other oil companies are doing this in other refinery cities?" I'm like, "I'm sure they are." In fact, Mary and I really wanted to do like a big story on all of that, but it's just, you know, time. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so a couple of folks started looking into it. And then uh, in, I guess it was last week or maybe the week before, this report came out that showed that, yes, in fact, in pretty much every oil state and every oil kind of refinery town, oil companies are funding police either directly or through massive donations to police foundations. So again, it's like, you know, there is, you don't even have to look that hard to connect the dots on these things. You know, it's like, there's really a direct connection between um, these two sort of dominant power structures. And it was great to see, like, I think almost every major outlet had a story on it and all the stories were somewhat different. Everyone had their own take on it. And like, yeah, it was cool to see. I feel like we spent, you know, we've spent some time complaining about things not getting covered on this show. So shout out to all the folks who mm-hmm. did a good job on this. Um, yeah. yeah. People are listening. Sure. That's what I think they heard. They're like, we can't we can't get Amy and Mary mad. That's true. So it's, all, it's all down to hot take. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I will say of all the stories that came out about it, I feel like Arthur had the best headline. <laughs> Big oil loves police. <laughs> the emoji. Yeah. I thought that was very cute. Thanks. That was a, I wrote, I wrote that one. I was like, I don't know if this is going to fly or not. Um, <laughs> my editor was like, yeah, it works. She gave me like an, she, yeah. the person that edited gave me like an alternate pitch, which was like her alternate title suggestion was Big oil loves 
the police like your blue matter blue lives matter uncle which it was a pretty good alternate but she was like just go with the heart <laughs> yeah right. no that actually would have been super problematic because not everybody has a blue lives matter uncle because true. some of us oh, are black true true <laughs> so you went with the right headline pass the test <laughs> yeah good job good job and they fund jazz festival in New yep, Orleans. They sure like they do. basically, Sheldon's, they're funding the yeah. the Houston climate plan for crying yes. out loud. Like Houston, as a city, came up with a climate plan and is funded by, by BP. BP. Like I they know. Bas- they literally own these places. Yeah. The- they have legit taken the place of of slavery. You had an episode on drilled about this. Actually. Yeah, it's really crazy. It's really mm-hmm. really nuts. Um, there's even like there's newspapers in texas where the the environment reporter is paid for by an oil company too it's like it's outrageous <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Wow. it's absurd yeah so anyway anyway fuck those guys thanks so much for joining us <laughs> yes fuck them <laughs> with a stick um <laughs> but Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. It's been great to have you yeah, on. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's been an honor. This is like a, a dream come true oh. to talk with the hot takers. Oh, wow. I did not pay him to say that, folks. <laughs> I said it all of yeah. my own volition, and I will say it's it again. It's the booze. It's been a dream come true. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thank you so much to Brian for joining us on the show today. You can and should follow him on Twitter. He's at BLKahn, and that is B-L-K-A-H-N. And you should keep up with his work over at Earther. Definitely. They're doing such a great job over there. Seriously. Yeah, so good. Every day I feel like there's an Earther story that I um, make mm-hmm. make sure I have time to read. Right. You can also follow us on Twitter at Real Hot Take. I'm at Amy Westervelt and Mary is at Mary Hegler. Yep. And like we said earlier, you should subscribe to our newsletter. We're doing great stuff over there. Everything from movie reviews to original reporting to climate grief essays to previews of essays we're publishing elsewhere. And bonus clips from this show. Mm -hmm. And general rants, because we have a lot of them. (laughs) We've got a lot of rants. We've got a lot of shit pent up. If you've noticed we've gotten quieter on Twitter, it's because we've moved the rant to another vehicle. Um, Yeah. We have a premium version with all those fun features for as little as $7 a month or $80 a year. Or if you really love us, you can sign up for a founding membership at $210. But we totally understand that everyone can't do that right now, and we firmly believe that that should not keep you from keeping up with the most important story of our time. So we produce a free newsletter, too, that has a ton of good stuff in it, including a roundup of weekly coverage and a free feature from us and teasers for all the good stuff in the premium newsletter. Mm-hmm. Also, we have merchandise now. We've got hats and shirts and mugs, and we're getting even more. Um, and I'm wearing my shirt right now, and let me tell you, this thing feels like butter. I'm so running comfy, around. Right? And they're know, amazing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm running around with a shirt with a quote from Kate Marvel, and it's like really comforting. Um, so <laughs> I highly recommend it. We've got tanks, we've got muscle shirts, we've got t-shirts, we've got it all. We've even yeah. got baby shirts, which I am 1,000% getting a baby shirt for my cat. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. If you've gotten your shirts or any other kind of merch, send us pictures. We love to see them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, check back on our website, hottakepod.com for more designs and new stuff soon. Yeah. All right. That's about it for this episode. Our next episode, we're doing something totally different. Um, we're going to be talking about climate writing and food. Everybody likes food, right? Um, yeah. We're going to be... <laughs> I like food. Um, I like we're food. Yeah, love food. Um, <laughs> going to be talking with David Tamarkin, who is at Epicurious. If you've got questions about that general theme, please send us to hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. And make sure to leave us a rating or review at iTunes. If you have a negative review, please send it to brian.con at earther.com. Or if you just feel like talking shit, may we recommend going to the BP and Shell podcast and leaving bad reviews there. Yeah, those are all great options. Fantastic (laughs) options. All right. We'll talk to y'all again soon. Bye.